Good morning, friends. So this is week nine of our series called God in Everyday Life. And uh, if you're here today, I got a question for you before we dive in. And that is, hey, why do you go to work? Like, what is the sole purpose of you going to work? There's so many people that dread Monday. And the question is, is why do you go? Like, if you dread it, if you hate it, why do you go? More than that, if you were to ask your teenager this afternoon to work for two hours, what is likely their response? Oh, why? What do I get? Pew Research shared this, that about 49% of Americans are highly satisfied with their work. That meant that 51% or so are not all that satisfied with their work. Uh, but he kind of went in, in kind of categories. 30% or so said, you know what, we're somewhat satisfied. Uh, then it kind of began to, to narrow a little bit where you had around 9% who said, we're, we're not satisfied at all. And then there's the 6% or a little more that said, we are highly dissatisfied. Like we don't like it at all. What was interesting is I was reading through that research the thing that correlated to the success of work or more than that, the satisfaction of work came down to the monetary value in which an employee received. The higher uh, the, the employer's paycheck was, the more their satisfaction went up. For instance, if you made 75000 or more at your workplace, then you were more likely to be highly satisfied. If you made less than that, the likelihood is that you were less satisfied. Now, my point in this is that many of us are wired to work for a paycheck. Uh, many uh, weeks ago, I shared with you just the idea of a, a, a lady named Dorothy Sayers, but she just wrote an article at the end of World War II called Why Work? And her premise was simply this, is that Americans have been programmed to work for the dollar as opposed to work for the the pure idea that you and I were created in the image of God to be workers. A matter of fact, we kicked off this series uh, in, on January 8th, the very first week, with the idea that we are created in the image of God. And we shared this verse with you in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. I'm going to put it for you in front of you. Uh, but while I put this in front of you, if you want to go ahead and turn to Psalm 104 in your Bibles, you can. But we want to just kind of start with a reminder uh, of this context in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, which is why the Lord created man and woman. And it says in Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God then took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And when you look at these words there, to work it and keep it, those come from two Hebrew words. Uh, the one is to work it is the word avod, which means to cultivate. You can think about the idea of tilling the ground, to turn it over. But then more than that, that word also has other meanings. It means to work or to serve. But oftentimes you would find in the Old Testament, the same word there, avod, also meant to worship. So the idea was is that God created Adam and Eve to work and cultivate the garden, and it was a means of worship. It was a means of working for God. So as they tilled, as they labored, as they pruned the vines, as they enjoyed the benefit of living in the Garden of Eden, it was good work. It was fulfilling work, and, and the work had not been distorted. 
But what's interesting is, is that they weren't just to work it, but they were also to keep it. And that word there, keep, was the Hebrew word shamar, which meant to protect or to watch over. It's the idea that you would steward something. And so we discovered in the very first week of this entire series, God in Everyday Life, is that we were created as image bearers of God and we are to be cultivators, to be creators, and we are to steward the very things that God has given us. And we've talked about a variety of subjects over the course of the last eight or nine weeks. And today we're going to ask the question, hey, why do we work? And what is the purpose of our work? And that means why do we go and work 40 hour or 50 hour or 60 hour or for some cases in here, 70 hour work weeks? Like what is the purpose of it? Do I find fulfillment there? If not, why not? That's the question we're going to ask today. And we're going to answer that in three quick statements. And the very first one I want you to just see is that, is that God really is the designer of all work. And so work reflects God's design. So that's what you have to think about. Work reflects God's design. Matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Psalm 104 if you're not already there. Uh, but Psalm 104 is just going to show you a little bit about who God is. And even as we read this, if you don't have your Bible, we'll put it free of the screen. I want you to just take note of a handful of things you observe about God, the creator of all we see and know about him in his working. So Psalm 104, beginning in verse 10, says, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. You is the emphasis on God here. So this is the psalmist writing and saying, God, you are the one who makes springs gush forth from the valleys. They, the rivers, they flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, God, from where you dwell, you are the one who waters the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. You see here that God is working. If you continue on, uh, skip down to verse 24, 25. It says, O Lord, how manifold are your, what? Works. How manifold, how majestic, how how plentiful are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So he is creating, he is working. Verse 25, here's the sea, great and wide, with teams, with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. And it just continues on, but let's flip all the way down to verse 31 and 32. It says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. And the idea is that God is working and has always worked. He worked in creation. And we read last week in Colossians chapter 1 that, Jesus was with God in the beginning, and that Jesus is God, and through Jesus, God created everything we see and know, and even the things we don't see and know, that God and His Son are workers. They're cultivators. They're creators. And they worked from the very beginning of time. But what's interesting is, is they didn't just work from the beginning of time. 
Jesus was having a conversation in John chapter 5, and he just said, when accused of working on the Sabbath, he says, listen, I am working now just as my father is working now. That's when he healed a paralytic in John chapter 5. Jesus goes, just as I am working, my father is working. So what you need to know is that God didn't just work in creation. He didn't just speak everything into existence and then go, you know what, I'm just going to rest. And you might think, well, he created everything on, in six days and then he rested on the seventh. And you might think, well, God's still resting today. He slumbers. He sleeps. He, he doesn't do anything. And I would just tell you, no, that's not the picture of our God. Our God not only worked in the beginning, but he also worked through Christ. Now, he didn't work through Christ merely to heal paralytics and lame men and blind men. What was Jesus' greatest work, friends? The cross. In the cross, Jesus worked, and he worked to cancel the legal demands of sin, that sinners such as you and I could have a new life in Christ because Jesus worked. He worked as if he was working for the Father, he pleased his Father in every way. He went to the cross of Calvary and he canceled the legal demands. He disarmed all the powers, all the principalities of the dark world. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He met the legal demands through his work on the cross. But friends, he didn't leave us there either, did he? What's interesting is Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 to work out our salvation with fear and what? Let me ask you this question. Is it possible for you and I as Christ followers to work out our salvation without God's work in our life? No, it's not. See, you don't, you don't work out your salvation on your own. You and I have a God who is working even in this moment to bring about change in our lives so that we are made into the image of a glorious God who loves us and cares for us. See, I want you to see that God has designed it that he is a worker. He works in creation. He works in salvation. He works in sanctification. He is working, working, working. Right now, we pray that God works. Works on our hearts. Works on your hearts. We have a working God. And because we have a working God and we see that in the very design of who he is, it helps us also know that his work reveals our dignity. That's number two. So you see that work reveals his design, but work reveals also your dignity. What that means is, is that you were created in the image of God and you were created to do the very thing which you have created in your life to have animosity for, which is work. <laughs> which is kind of a conundrum, isn't it? God creates you to be a worker and a keeper to cultivate and worship and to serve him through your work, but you hate your work. Why do you hate your work? It's because you don't understand what dignity your work provides. You also don't understand why God created work in the first place. And here's the deal. You won't work unless you understand that God is a worker. God is working now. And because he's working now, he designed us to work. Now, you and I think, well, in the fall of man, work was cursed and work is the problem. No, here's the, work is not the problem. Work is not inherently bad. The problem is you and I. And the problem is our perspective on work. It also is the way that work is distorted, which we'll talk about in a few moments. But what I want you to know is that work does provide real dignity. Consider the words that Paul wrote to the church of Colossae in Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24. A verse that you've likely heard before. I want you to look at it somewhat closely. 
<coughs> it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Which is interesting because the word work there in the Greek is the word that you and I would get poetry from. The idea is that your work would be a poetic expression to God. The idea here is that you work as an opportunity to, to, to create. Poetry doesn't just come on the paper by itself, does it? Right? You have to think about it. You have to collaborate. You have to express it. And you have to write it down. And the idea here is that as you begin to understand whatever you do, you work heartily as for the Lord. The idea is that you would be an expression of God's goodness to the world. And you would do that not merely for yourself, but it says that you are serving the Lord Christ in verse 24. Tim Keller says this about work, and I agree completely, but this is what he says. He says, work is so foundational to our, uh, our makeup that it is one of the few things that we can take in any significant doses without harm. Indeed, the Bible does not say we should work one day and rest six days or that work and rest should be balanced evenly, but directs us to the opposite ration. Leisure and pleasure are great goods, but we can only take so much of them. If you ask people in nursing homes or hospitals how they are doing, you will often hear that their main regret is they wish they had something to do and some way to be useful to others. See, we were not created merely to spend our life frantically chasing something only to get to the end of our days and sit around in, nur in, in nursing homes or hospitals. See, we were created with dignity and value, and that dignity and value is to be workers. It is a way that we reflect the very image of a God who is working even now. The challenge is, is that you got to ask, well, okay, then how do I move about in a workplace that I, don't, that I don't love? And how do I find satisfaction in a work that I feel un, as unfulfilling or in some ways I see as meaningless? I would say this, you have to adjust your perspective. Friends, if you're merely going to work for a paycheck, then you are going to be dissatisfied and you're going to find work as unfulfilling. But I think the solution to this question is found as Paul writes to the church of Colossae in Colossians 3 that I just showed it. Let me put it for you up on the screen again so you see. So we're not only to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We're not only to be an expression of God's work, but it says that knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. The, the point that Paul is making here is that you and I do not work for an earthly master. We work for a heavenly one. The point that Paul is trying to drive home to this audience in Colossae, particularly in the examples that are going on there in that culture, is saying, look, you, you're not going to be satisfied in and of your work itself. You're satisfied when you know why you work and who it is that you work for. But the problem that we oftentimes see is, is that we go, okay, well, maybe I do my work for God. But the problem is that we also struggle to see the significance in our work. And one of the reasons why is because for the last, really, <clears throat> I would say 1,700 years, we've been struggling with the idea that even Augustine posed, which is the idea of what we would call a contemplative work or an active work. Augustine said, well, contemplative work is a more sacred work that people can do. And if you're a, 
a monk or a pastor or a priest or you're involved in ministry in some ways, then that's more contemplative work. It's in some ways an upper tier, a higher echelon level of work. And he said, but if you're involved in the active life, which he would call a secular life, and he goes, you're in a lower tier work. And what he did in some ways is he posed the idea that there's a difference between a higher work and a lower work. There's a difference between a sacred work and a secular work. A contemplative work, a thought-provoking work, and this, this mundane active work. So in some ways, the elevation of the clergy and the priesthood was, was happening. So in some ways, it's great to be a pastor, but it's terrible if you're laying bricks as, and mortar. It's great to be a, a missionary, but if you're just educating kids or more than that, you're just a stay-at-home mom, then there's no significance or real value. You're in secular work, and we over here in this sacred work. And the problem is not only we struggle to find value in our jobs itself because of the monetary aspect, but we also struggle because we think, well, there's something more for me to do. Like maybe at some point I'm going to graduate out of this job I have for something more significant. And maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you look right now at your job and you're like, man, I'm just a convenience store clerk. And I'm like, surely God's got something more for me. Or, hey, right now I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just bussing tables and, and man, like, I, I want to I move up. And I would just say, listen, I think there is real danger in siloing out your job. There's real danger in seeing your job only as monetary. There's also real danger in seeing jobs and vocations as categories or hierarchies. The reason I would push back against Augustine's thought and many others is because of what the scripture says and what Peter writes in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10, he says this to a people who are needing to be reaffirmed in their walk with, with God. He says, I want you to know that you are a chosen race you're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. In essence, here's what Peter says. He goes, listen, there was a time where you were in darkness. Now you're in light. There was a time you were enslaved in your sin, but now you're free to walk in Christ. Hey, there was a time where you were an orphan, an alien. You had no family, but he goes, now you have a family. You're not alone. And more than that, you are a priesthood. Now, when he says those words, you are a priesthood, what he says is that you are now part of a sacred work. You've left the secular, and you're a part of a sacred work. You're like, hold on, whoa, 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 wait a second. I'm a part of a sacred work. I'm just a teacher. Yes, it's a very sacred work. Hold on, wait a second, wait a second. I, I just build cabinets. A very sacred work. Well, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I struggle to find purpose. A sacred work. See, I want you to realize that the Protestant reformers, what they did is they fought for two things. One, the word of God back to the people, but the other part was the value of work for the people. They wanted to fight against the notion that that the clergy was elevated somehow, and that everybody else was less than. And I think that's what Peter is saying. Listen, if you pour concrete, 
Poor to the glory of God. That's a significant work. It's a sacred work. Why? Because if you see the work as an opportunity to honor God, and you also see it as a means in which your dignity is revealed to a world in need, it's a very important work. Oftentimes, have people go, hey, man, I would love just to maybe work for the church. I'm like, hey, why would you want to work for the church? Well, it's because in some ways the thought is it's, that's going to be an easier work or it's a better work or it's a more valuable work. And I would just say, listen, wherever it is that God has you, find great value in it. Why? Because God is a worker. He's working in and through you, and he wants you to find great success and dignity and value in your sacred work right where you are. There's a guy named Lester DeCoster, and uh, he has a quote that is absolutely life-changing. And he just asks the question, hey, imagine that everyone quit working right now, okay? It's 11.32 and six seconds. Everyone on the planet just stopped working. He asks the question, well, what happens? And then he says, civilized life quickly melts away. Food, my friends, vanishes from the shelves. Gas dries up at the pumps, streets are no longer patrolled, and fires burn themselves out. Communication and transportation services end. Utilities go dead. Those who survive at all are soon huddled around campfires. They're sleeping in caves, clothed in raw animal hides. And then he says this, a very profound word. The difference between a wilderness and a culture is simply work. The only reason you and I are not Neanderthals in caves is because we found significant work. And if you're a machinist or a professor, you're a carpentry guy, or you're an educator, whether you're a teacher or a software development, if you mow yards for a living, it's significant and sacred work. If you're a plumber, if you maintain ditches and roads, if you build houses, it's a sacred and significant work. It is as sacred and significant as me preparing a message for you this week. There is nothing different about my work and your work other than the context. And the context does not matter nearly as much as how you and I work. Because the way we work reveals our dignity and our value. So we work because God is a worker. And we work because it provides dignity. But we also work. And as we work, it reminds us of maybe one of the most significant events of history. And that's our depravity. And that's why we struggle with work. And so work reminds us simply of our depravity. In Genesis chapter 3. After the world was created, Adam and Eve were lured into temptation by the enemy. The accuser convinced them that, that God was trying to be a killjoy. And because they decided to go after the, the tempting lure and lie and the deceitfulness of sin, they ate of the forbidden fruit. Their eyes were open. They were naked, ashamed. God removed them from his presence. And as a result of that, work was going to become laborious. What that means is, is that not that work was cursed in and of itself, because work is a fantastic thing. If work was cursed, then God wouldn't be a working God. 
If work was cursed, God wouldn't give us dignity in our work. So the reality is work is not cursed. It's the ramifications of work that brings about the curse. It's the fact that we would not find as much fulfillment in work as we once did. See, work was fulfilling in Genesis chapter 3 prior to the fall. And now work is frustrating. Would you agree? Work in and of itself in the garden was created to be selfless. But now we've made our work selfish. It's about what we can get. It's about how we can grab. It's about what we can make. Hey, I'm only going to show up at the, at the job if you pay me what I think I'm worth. If I don't get that, I ain't coming. And the challenge with that is that our work has been marred by that depravity. And we see depravity in two significant ways. This doesn't encompass everything, but there's two significant ways that work is depraved. The very first one would be what I would call the idolatry of work. Idolatry is when you take your work and you put it in the wrong place. The same warning that God gave the people of Israel on Mount Sinai through Moses in Exodus chapter 20 is the same thing we have to be cautious of. In Exodus chapter 20, one of the primary things we should avoid is to put anything above God. Let's look at these words in Exodus chapter 20. It simply says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that in the earth beneath or that is the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, when I read those words in Exodus 20, I'm like, I've never made an image and bowed down to it. If you remember a little bit of uh, the, the exodus, Israel comes out of 400 years of bondage in, in, in Egypt. And what's interesting is, is Moses goes up to get the law and then Aaron gets the people together and they encourage each other to put all their golden stuff together and then out comes this cow and they worship it. You and I don't really probably struggle with that too much. Now we do not necessarily have an image that we bow down to, but there are many things that vie for our attention, right? One of those, if not careful, can be our workplace. And it can quickly become an idol. And the way that our workplace becomes an idol is if, one, you put it in the place of God, but more than that, if you find your work value, your value from your work, and if it provides meaning. So maybe you're defined by your work, so people ask you who you are, and you go, well, uh, this, is, this is who I am. I'm a general contractor, and I have my own business, and, and I, I, I do these, these things. And, and the question is, is, who are you? And if your answer revolves around where you work or what you do, then there's a great likelihood that you have this form of idolatry. Because the reality is, is that you and I are not created to be defined by our work. We do find dignity in it. But we are defined as image bearers of God. And if not careful in the defining of our work, we'll distort it through idolatry. And what we'll do is we'll put our work as the king of our heart. Now, you might ask the question, well, how do I know if work is the king of my heart? And I would say, one, if you spend too much time at work or too much time thinking about work, then work is an idol for you. Maybe you're like, well, I think I've got a really good 
really good kind of ration going on. I'm, I'm going to have to work. I work really hard. I think I honor God there. Okay, here's another one. If you ever said these words, then work is an idol. I can't take off this week because if I do, there'll be no one to do my job. Work's an idol. If you haven't taken a vacation or stepped away from your workplace in a year or three years, or if you brag and say, well, I haven't taken a vacation in five plus years, all you tell me is that your work is an idol. Because listen to me, I can't wait to step away from my work, work week. You know why? Because my work is not defined merely by preaching or teaching or writing curriculum. My work is defined in much other significant ways. And listen, some of the most fulfilling work I do has nothing to do with the pastorate. And all of it honors and glorifies God. Why? Because it allows me to create, cultivate, serve, worship, and keep what God has given me. That's what work is. But if you idolize work, then you'll find yourself tied to it too closely, not stepping away from it because you feel like, hey, if I step away, it's all going to crumble. All that says is, if I step away, I've not trained anyone to do my job well. It also says, everything's dependent upon me. And friends, can I just tell you, if everything's dependent upon you, that's idolatry. Make sense? And so I would just caution you against that idea. I would say on the flip side of idolatry in our workplace is another one that the American culture could struggle with, and that would be idleness in our workplace. Idleness is as much of a problem as idolatry, but idleness just takes a little different form. Idleness undervalues work. It basically says what I do is meaningless and insignificant. It doesn't matter. I don't have to be on time. I don't have to work hard because what I do doesn't really make a difference. If you see your work as just pushing paper clips, then you've, you've missed the significance of what you were created for and in the image of who created you, the worker, God himself. But as you undervalue work, oftentimes it allows you to, to be lazy and slothful. In some ways, when you think about this idea of idleness, it also teaches you to prioritize your future retirement. Uh, when, you, I, uh, when you are idle in your work, what it simply says is, I like comfort and I like, I like to step away from the workplace because it's really more about my own comfort, my own ease, and about, again, my future expectations. And so what happens is, is that you become a sluggard. What's interesting is Solomon cautions us against that in Proverbs. Matter of fact, one of the greatest examples of slothfulness in our Bible comes from um, who we should compare ourselves to. Look what it says in Proverbs 6, verse 6-11. We'll put it for you up on the screen. It just says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. This little bitty creature we can learn so much from. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. Hey, how long are you going to lie there, O sluggard? Hey, when are you going to rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. See, the challenge is, is that if not careful, the distortion of work also will creep into our lives in the form of idleness. And here's the challenge with idleness. When we don't put in a full, honest day work, we become a thief even to our employer. 
See, the reality is it impacts not only who we are as image bearers, but it also impacts the ability for our work to give God praise. Because if you go to work tomorrow and you idolize your work, then what you're saying is, I'm more dependent upon myself and my, my time than I am God's time or the dependency upon him to get things done in a work day, even if my work day is shorter than I'd like it to be. If you go to work tomorrow and you struggle with idleness in your work, not idolatry, but idleness, then what you basically will do is you'll go and you'll rob man of a full day's work and you won't express the glorious splendor that God has created you to express. Either way, it's this wrestle that we have to deal with. And I would say that every one of us in this room probably have had seasons in our life where our work has been an idol and where we've had seasons where our work has drained us, depleted us, and in some ways created us to be just idle in our work. And so whether it's idolatry or idleness, we have to be careful of it. Now, here's why I ask this question. Hey, why? Why work? Well, it's because God is a worker. And he's created you and I to be cultivators and keepers. And friends, even though the curse happened in Genesis chapter 3 and sin entered and marred the world and, and certainly has changed a lot of things in our life, friends, I just want you to know that God is still working in and through us. And he does desire that you and I would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And as a result of that, I can't figure out how God would desire me to look more like him and it not include my Monday through Friday. For me, it's a Monday through Sunday. This oftentimes your work doesn't take a break, right? When you want to, it's still there. But how do you please God in it all? It's to trust him. He is the creator of it. He designed it. He gives you great dignity in your work. And you got to be careful of two distortions, two things that will knock you off track. Now, I say all that because... Monday comes around pretty quickly, doesn't it? And I don't know about you, but for many of us, spring break, uh, though kids are out, you're not. And it's really easy when your kiddos are out on spring break to go, you know what, I just want to be idle. I don't want to do anything. In some ways, it kind of puts you in a little bit of a funk, if you know what I mean. Uh, in some ways, you're like, man, our kids are out, and I still got to go in and drive into work. And already, you're just a little unsettled because you're like, that's that stinks. That's not fun. It's not fair. They're going to be having fun and they're going to be doing all these things and I got to go into uh, work. And the only reason I'm going is because I got to put food on the table and I got to pay all these bills. And I would just say, hey, could we ask the Lord to help us adjust our perspective? Hey, Lord, as I go into work tomorrow, God, would you help me to find fulfillment in my work? Would you help me to know that I am a royal priesthood and the value of my work really makes a difference. And Lord, it's really easy amongst the buddies that I work with for me to lose joy because they're cussing and they're saying things and they're talking about their wives. And it's really easy for me to go, you know what, I don't want to be here. But Lord, would you help me to stay strong? And would you help me, Lord, to find purpose and perspective? God, in the midst of a society where joy is depleted so quickly, Lord, would you help me to be full of joy? Lord, where there's anger and yelling in the workplace, Lord, would you help me to be resolved to be patient? God, may I reflect the very image of my creator. May I be loving to those who seem to be unlovable. May I be kind and soft-hearted, tender to those who are difficult. 
in the midst of waiting tables and having people who are demanding and demeaning, Lord, would you help me not to find my purpose in who I serve at my table, but who I serve at the eternal grand table, the one who awaits and prepares for me something in the presence of even my enemies. Lord, would you help me to have your perspective? Friends, that's what it looks like. God, give me joy. Give me patience. Give me perseverance. And more than that, would you remind me that my work is significant and it is sacred and it does matter because without my work, Lord, our society couldn't go on. And so, Lord, may my work find significance and value not in and of itself, but in the way I work for you. So let me say one more thing that I said earlier. The context of where you work doesn't matter near as much of how you work and who you work for. And friends, if you need to be reminded, you work for an audience of one. And he cares about your character and he cares about how you work. And so may we work, even in the midst of our current challenges, for the glory of God and the good of those around us, even when those around us are fairly difficult people at times. Lord, help us. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I pray, Lord, that you would take your word and help help us to, to apply it in our lives. Lord, I thank you that regardless if we're washing dishes or preaching the word of God, Every bit of it should be to please you. And so, God, would you help us to work with integrity, with excellence, with purpose. And, Lord, help us to do it without grumbling or disputing. Help us to be blameless and innocent, children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Lord, help us to shine like lights in the midst of a world in need. And help us to not shy away from running our race well. Give us strength Give us wisdom, give us perspective, and most of all, give us your spirit to help us see the value of our work and why it reflects your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.